You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. What a good morning. It's raining. I mean, it's just, I don't even know what day it is. What season is this? <laughs> Summer, fall, tur. Uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I'm really enjoying these cooler temperatures, especially because we are, uh, we've been going out to the block for Love the Block, and I gotta say, it is really enjoyable when it is in the 70s and you go love on your community. Hmm. You know, when you need the iPad to work, it doesn't. It's a really good, it wants to go this way. I'm dating myself. Anybody? <laughs> this is like how my parents Zoom. Okay, there we go. <laughs> It's upside down. No, it's right side up. But anyways, yeah, we've been going out to the block, uh, loving on our neighbors. I really want to encourage you to be a part of it. Honestly, come be a part. And you're like, how do I be a part? One, sign up really easy. Go on the Church Center app. You'll see the event. You can sign up right there. You can sign up in at the next step table in the back. You can sign up at the welcome table. I'll sign you up myself. You can sign up on the website. You might have to try harder to not sign up than to sign up. But I really want to encourage you. Everybody says they want a church that loves their kids community, but how many want to be a church that loves their community? So I invite you to be a church that loves your community. Thursday night, 6 o'clock, we have an amazing Love the Block team that basically does all the hard work for you. All the bags are prepped. All the things are ready to go. You grab them. You go out. Uh, Some weeks it's a big thing. Some weeks, last week it was just a small way to bless our community, but honestly, uh, we get to pray for people and see lives changed and renewed, and that's what it's all about. Amen? Amen. So come sign up uh, today so we can start making those pods and making it happen. And uh, it seems kind of fitting then that today we're going to continue our series on evangelism. And we're going to talk today about praise. We've been in a series called Everyday Evangelism, looking at the book of First Peter. I thought... Uh, we, we could start off with something a little fun today, and I want to give you the option to participate in the sermon today, okay? Okay. Some of you are like, okay. Some of you are like, I don't like this idea already. That's okay. Um, <laughs> now, this is going to require you knowing me a little bit, so if you're newer, you can just, you know, laugh at me during this process and observe. But I want to ask a question. I'm curious what your response is. And it's this. Based solely upon uh, what you have heard me say— what you have seen me do as a person, what are some of the things you think I love and enjoy? So based off of what you've heard me say, like I, I, every week I'm up here, I'm saying something for the most part, based off of what you've heard me say, talk about what are some of the things, people, all kinds of things that you think I might enjoy? Jesus, thank you. What a regenerative background. I love you, wife. No, go, go for it. Someone, anybody that knows me, shout out some gardening. Fly fishing. There we go. Okay, setting, setting goals. Okay, awesome. Seahawks up wearing the hat. That's cheating. <laughs> it doesn't count. Uh, yeah, hunting. Okay, there we go. Yeah, and, and I think the reason for this, like, every service, like, eight people have said gardening, and uh, the reason is because, like, I usually find a way to slide that into a sermon because when Jesus used agricultural examples, he just really set the tone, and it's easy, if I'm being honest. Um but yeah, I love all those things, right? Like, I thank you for saying Jesus, Gaetana. I appreciate you picking that note in the first service and leading strong with Jesus. No one said Jesus in the first service, and I really had to do some soul searching. <laughs> Not a single person. They're like, we assumed Jesus. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
But yeah, those are things I enjoy. And it's like, why, why do you know those things? Maybe we, may, we might not have even ever hung out. Why do you know that I enjoy those things? Because you've heard me talk about them, right? See, the biggest representation of what we love is seen in what we praise. You know that I love my wife because you hear me talk about her because she's amazing. She spoke last week, and you know in Scripture, in Joel, when it says, the Spirit will fall on sons and daughters and they will prophesy, my wife is one of those daughters who knows how to prophesy and bring the heat. And so you know that I love her because I praise her. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be unusual because that is the reality is the biggest representation of what we love is in what we praise, what we talk about, what we celebrate, what we tell others about. I'm going to read together a scripture in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Go to open your Bibles if you have them. If not, the words will be on the screen. And in fact, if you would like a physical Bible, I know people have the Bible app, but you'd like a physical Bible, or you've never had a physical Bible, I'll give you one after service. Just come talk to me, and I'll get you one. we got some really cool ones in. If you've never been given a physical Bible, uh, let me give you one and tell you where to start, give you some direction. But today we're going to be talking in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to read this to you. It's verse 9 through 10. He says, but you, Peter is talking here. He says, but you are a chosen people. He's talking to the believers. As you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You were once, or once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. Look at that phrase in verse 9, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out. Declare the praises. The literal wording he's saying there is, announce broadly the virtues of God. That's what we're going to talk about today. The title of this sermon today is, Praise is Evangelism. We announce it. We declare it. We proclaim it. Praise is evangelism. Let's pray, and we're going to jump into it together. Lord, I thank you that your word is alive and active. God, I pray that as we look at your word and we look at Peter writing to the early church, that you would speak to us and you would transform our hearts. In your name, amen. I, uh, I got my master's from uh, a, what I jokingly call a Jesus school. Uh, <laughs> a Christian school and ministry and theology. and But I got my undergrad at what I would call a not-Jesus school. <laughs> I got my undergrad at the University of Washington in philosophy, which means that there was not a single Christian student in any of my classes ever. <laughs> That's what that means. Um, I went to a school that was a very liberal progressive school, and I picked a program that was kind of like all of those people combined. It was like, you know, it was concentrated. It's the kind of orange juice you got to thin out with water, right? They're all there in the philosophy program. Uh, and so I studied ethical philosophy. That was one of the areas that I really focused on. 
as I was in my undergrad, and in a lot of ethical philosophy, you're talking about the value of people, why people matter, and inevitably what comes up is uh, religions and different world religions. I also study comparative religion, but uh, a lot of religions come up, and so in the classes, people uh, speak very pridefully and boldly because they're in a philosophy class and they think they know everything, and they say, well, Christians believe this, and Christians think this, and Christians do this, and this is what Christians believe, and this is what Christians believe. And, you know, I, as a philosophy student, my goal, I'm trying to get that education. And the reason I took philosophy is because I value the putting together of strong ideas and the presentation of them well. And the willingness and the ability to receive rebuttal in a healthy way and respond. That's why I'm there. Uh, I didn't really feel like I was there to defend Christianity. But at some point, I had to be like, yeah, I, that's actually not what we believe. Right? At some point, I'd be like, I, I just can't. Like, I just can't anymore sit here and be like, well, Christians believe this. I'm like, that is literally not what we believe. That's not what we believe about these people. It's not what we believe about this action. It's not what we believe about God. That's not even who we say God is. And uh, I, I just kind of offered, said, like, I'd be honored just to be able to express what I, what I believe as a Christian. I'm not summarizing all doctrine and theology. But it, what I believe, and if I be honest, I wish it was like one of those moments, like those like cheesy Christian God's Not Dead movies where they like stand up to the teacher and then the school rallies behind them. And then, I don't know, I've never seen a single one of them, but the newsboys are in it or something. I don't know. Uh, I don't watch that stuff. It's boring. Um, <laughs> it wasn't like that. That's all I can say. It was more like, uh, and then we just moved on, and then no one talked to me for the rest of the semester. That was kind of more my experience. I was like, God's not dead. They're like, great, shut up, right? <laughs> but in that moment, I, I was like grieved by what these people were falsely believing about themselves and about God and about Christ and his love for us. I was grieved by what they were saying about what Christians actually believe because it wasn't true. I, I, I was grieved by this in this moment. And I think many of us are grieved by the way and the things that people believe about themselves or believe about Christ or even believe about us as Christians. We don't like that. And we want to share the hope that we have. We want to raise our hand and say, oh, wait, no. Let me. We want to contend for that space, I would hope, to say, no, no, it's, this is about the love of God. This is about a relationship, making lightsabers back with Jedis. That's what that noise is. If you're listening to the podcast, you could probably only hear this, but there was a noise because we have these cool-looking Jedis back there, and they're building lightsabers, which is pretty dope. I'm not going to lie. Um, anyways, we're talking about a sermon. <laughs> See, many of us, we want to share the hope that we've received, but I think that we spend most of our time just waiting for an opportunity. See, that's where the tension lives. A lot of us are waiting for what we would consider gospel opportunities or evangelistic opportunities. And we define evangelistic opportunities as moments where others are open to the gospel. When we think people, right, we're waiting for that moment where, like, people are sympathetic to the gospel. And when they're sympathetic, then we'll speak up, which is true. The Holy Spirit leads in that way. But I have a question. What if they're not sympathetic, but the gospel still needs to be preached? Does the gospel need to still be preached? The hope in life of Jesus Christ, even if the setting in which you're speaking it is not like heaven's open receptive moment where someone's like, surely someone knows the gospel here, right? It's like, it's not always that way. 
what if they're not sympathetic? Do they still need to hear the hope of Jesus Christ? Yes. Last week, Katie preached on honor and respect, and she read out of uh, 1 Peter 3.15. And I want to read you this verse again. It says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And you can go back and listen to that whole sermon, you know, another time. It's great. But I want to make sure that as we understand gentleness and respect and living a life of respect, that we understand that Peter is not advocating for a silent witness. Like, we'll just live quietly, then people will come to you. I talked about when we started this series that as I was trying to figure out evangelism as a young person, I went to a pastor and I said, what do I do? And he said, well, just, just live well. And then like when bad things happen, people will see you and they'll come talk to you. I was like, cool. So my evangelism strategy is like hope that bad things happen to my friends so they come talk to me about Jesus. Like I don't think I want that strategy. I want to tuck into that for the next two decades, right? There's got to be something a little bit more effective than like, well, maybe something bad will happen. Then they'll see that when bad things happen to me, I don't get really that upset about it, and I'm cool, and then they'll think I'm good. They'll come ask me. It's just initiated. I'll just wait, right? See, this is why I can't bait fish. Someone said I like fishing, and I want to clarify. I like fly fishing because I... Uh, I cannot handle bait fishing. If you're a bait fisherman, God bless you. I don't know how you do it. I, I did that one time. I got the bait on the thing, and I had the bobber, right? And I threw it into a lake, and they were like, okay, that's it. And I was like, what do you mean that's it? Like, oh, we just sit here for like 12 years. What do you mean we just sit here? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, we just sit here. I'm like, that's not going to work for me. Right? I don't sit. I don't like to sit. I don't like to sit for long periods of time. 100% the only reason I have this job is so I'm not sitting in a seat during the sermon. That's it. That's the only. <laughs> but that's why I like fly fishing. Because if you're a bait fisherman, you're waiting for that nibble to come along, right? You're waiting for that moment to come to you. If you're a fly fisherman, you still have to be patient. You still have to wait. You still have to look. You still have to think. But you got to go find them. You have to seek. You have to seek out. You got to drop it in on them into a situation where they're not expecting it. And maybe not even, they don't even know they want it. You have to go to them. See, this is what I love about what Peter is advocating. It is not to stand or sit silently by and hope that being a fisher of men means waiting for someone to come take a nibble on the bait you have. It's to seek out the places where the need is and declare the praises of God. First Peter, I, I want to do this. I read you that section 9 and 10, but I would love just for some context here, because he does such a beautiful job explaining this. I would love to just read the whole section, 2 through 12. So we're going to start, or sorry, 4 through 12. So we're going to start before it, and we're going to go past it, okay? Okay. Here's what it says, 1 Peter 4, 12. It says, as you come to him, the living stone. He's talking about Jesus here. This is the prophecy of Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone, who was rejected by human hands, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, 
to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, and, he, and he's quoting the prophets here, he's saying the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone, right, it's, it's where you start. It's the root of everything. Everything is built and anchored off this cornerstone. He says, and, quoting the prophets again, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. It says they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, and this is what I read earlier, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And look at this phrase, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you've not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. And we're going to go past it here. It says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Meaning they see your good deeds and there's something that transforms within them. That's why they're glorifying God when he returns. See, Peter never intended to portray evangelism to exiles solely in terms of quiet humility. He expects exiles to embrace their social shaming. That's why he says, just as Christ is the living stone, the cornerstone who was rejected, so will you be. We're like, that, yeah, that hits a little hard, right? He says, you're going to be rejected. He says, embrace that. But that's why in verse 10, he says, but you've been made a kingdom of priests to proclaim the praises of God. That's why you were created. That's what you have been restored to, to preach and declare the praises of God. But I think if we're being honest, let's just, be, can we be honest for a second? Uh, preaching as exiles is difficult, right? It's a little scary. Exiles don't have authority. Christians, you, you don't have cultural authority. There might be some institutions that call themselves Christian that have some authority, but like you don't. Also, we might offend. That's tough too, right? If we share the gospel, someone might get offended. So what happens is we resign the preaching of the gospel to the pulpit. We placate people by not really saying anything about sin in the world. Therefore, not giving them the hope of repentance. We avoid any kind of religious conversations because that's like apparently polite now. So not talk about anything religious, anything about Jesus that would ruin the evening and the dinner party. Like we got football to talk about. We can't talk about Jesus. What, ha what happens is we're waiting for that perfect opportunity. We're waiting for it to be safe. We're waiting for it to be easy. We're waiting for there to be no risk. And I, I could say maybe when Christianity was kind of this institutional thing, maybe you come from the Bible Belt, maybe you come from a place that's like that. It was an institution, so maybe you felt like maybe you could get away with that. But can I just say not now? That time's gone. If we continue, believers, listen to me, if we continue to wait for perfect opportunities, they will never come. Ecclesiastes speaks of a farmer who waits because he's watching the wind over and over and over and doesn't sow. And here's what it says. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. He's waiting for the right moment so he does not sow the seeds. And what happens? The season passes him by. Listen, church, if we are so busy trying to find the right time to sow the seeds of hope, we're never going to plant any seeds. The season will pass us by and we will be another generation 
that did not rise up to the beautiful calling of Jesus Christ. And we need to be honest. Clearer skies are not on the horizon. But it's time to sow the seed. Church, listen, it's time to scatter the seed, the seed of hope, the seed of life, the seed of freedom, the seed of restoration, the seed that is Jesus. It's not poison, it's life. And it's time to sow that blessed life. It's time to begin, even though the opportunity might not feel right. It's interesting. Uh, I, I just want to talk terminology real quick. Can we do that? Is that okay? And, and I don't want this to be semantics, but I think it's important. Words matter. In a Western Christianity, we've kind of defined evangelism as sharing the gospel. It's a good term, sharing the gospel. I'm going to share the gospel with you. And it has kind of two meanings, though. The first meaning I really like because it's seen as a gracious act of giving someone a treasure that you possess. I got, you know, my brother here, and I'm going to share something. Hey, man, I have this beautiful thing. I want you to have it. I want to give it to you. That's good. But there's a second kind of idea that lives within this, and it's this implying of some sort of charity where we give the gospel solely to willing participants. It's like, well, they're open to it, so I'm going to share it with them. I'm waiting for that opportunity. I'm waiting for that moment. I'm waiting for that openness, and then I'm going to share it with them. I know they don't even know that they need it, but I'm going to wait for them to need it, and then I'm going to share it with them. It's like, okay, good luck. Have fun. It brings up a question. Do the words of the language we use matter? I, I think so. See, Scripture rarely uses the term share when talking about the gospel. Usually it talks about preaching, declaring, and proclaiming. That does look a little different, doesn't it? See, the early church, they expounded, they applied the gospel, but all through Acts, we see the apostles proclaiming the gospel, speaking boldly. We see them persuading others and reasoning from Scripture. Look at Acts 17. It says, when Paul and his companions passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. It says, as was his custom, meaning he does this consistently, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So three weeks, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Look at those words that were in there. It says he reasoned with them, explaining and proving and proclaiming. I don't want to get into semantics about share, not share, but I think how we talk about something really influences what we do with it. It'd be like this. If, if I was a baseball coach, and every time, let's say, your kid was on my team and on my baseball team, and it was my job to teach them how to be a good pitcher, right? And every game, every practice, every time I referred to anything they did as a pitcher, I said, just toss the ball. Just toss it. They're like, Anything else? No, it's just, it's real simple. Just toss it. Just toss it. Toss the ball. Right? Then we get into a game. Can't get batters out. And I come up to the mound. You do that thing where the manager walks out. <sighs> gonna, you're going to need to just toss that ball. Toss it. Toss the ball. Toss the ball. Okay. And I go back, right? Not like paint the corners, not change up speeds, right? Like not throw a fastball or not, you know, he's not hitting the slider, bring it, right? None of that. I just say, 
just toss it. Just toss it. Just toss the ball. Toss the ball. How accurately will that pitcher understand their responsibility? <laughs> but that's what we do with evangelism. We take this thing that has, should have a positive action step of do this, do this, and we say, I just share it. My question is, what if they don't want what you're sharing, right? See, like my kids, I have to teach them to share. Why? Because the other kid wants it. <laughs> but do you remember the time when you didn't want to hear about Jesus? Right? What Sharing implies someone wants it. So there's got to be more than just saying, just share it. We need more concrete terms, right? We need ideas that convey the attitude, approach, and authority necessary to do what we have been called to do. So let's clarify that together. What have we been called to do? Well, we've been called to evangelize. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word evangelize, coming from the Greek evangeliso, right, means to preach the good news. I think D.A. Carson best sums up the foundation of this word in the Gospels when he says, the gospel is primarily displayed in the heraldic proclamation. The gospel is announced, proclaimed, preached precisely because it's God's spectacular good news. See, evangelism involves testifying to the good news. Somebody say good news. Okay, come on, say it like you're happy. Like it is good news. Good news. Good news. Good news good news. Perfect. We're in a loop. Evangelism involves testifying to the good news. It's more than just sharing it. It involves warning, persuading, defending, pleading, calling. It's not harsh. It's gentle and respectful. And in fact, those relationships that Katie talked about last week that you build out of honor and respect, those are sometimes crucial for leveraging the authority of the words that you're speaking. Because sometimes someone has to know that you care about them, right? It's that old adage. It's like what we do at Love the Block, right? No one cares what you know until they know that you care. Sometimes you need that. But often, we're so afraid of losing those friendships that we don't actually proclaim the gospel. And what happens is we kind of lose a sense of urgency, Preaching the gospel. If you're writing notes, write this down. Write it on your hand. I don't know, write it on your forehead so I can make sure that you're doing it. Whatever. Uh, if you're writing notes, write down. Please don't actually do that. Uh, write down. Preaching of the gospel requires a sense of urgency. It's not a slide. This is just me and you talking right now. Preaching of the gospel requires a sense of urgency. Give you an Old Testament example. I don't know if you've heard of Noah. You saw that movie. I think it was Russell Crowe. That movie was wild, and I think it had like rock monsters in it. I was like, y'all taking some liberties. <laughs> Who is expecting the rock monsters? Not I, said the fly. <laughs> like, I was <laughs> halfway through the movie, I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, man, it only got weirder. Anyways, but Noah, the real Noah, the actual Noah who built the ark, lived as an outcast. No rock monsters. And he was warning others of the wrath to come. And so it's not surprising that Peter uses him as an example to talk to exiles, also warning them of what's to come. That's why in 2 Peter 2.5, Paul calls Noah the herald, the word there is literally preacher of righteousness. 1 Peter 3.19, it's a really unique and obscure passage. We don't have time to explore it. But basically it says that through Noah, Christ is preached to those who are disobedient. 
But beyond that, the biggest connection to Noah that we see as someone who has this sense of urgency in exile is how Jesus talks about the return of the Son of Man, meaning the end of days, meaning when the Son of Man will come back and judge the earth. Here's what Matthew said. Here's what he says in Matthew 24. He says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Just saying in the end, when Christ returns, no one knows when that will be. So if you're watching this on YouTube, we got we to talk to the online people here now, church. And you've clicked over from some other weird video where some pastor, who you can't even see the as a congregation, it's just green screen, has told you when the end of the world is, they lied to you. Unsubscribe. Because <laughs> Lord knows what else they're telling you. They can't know. And you know how I know that? Because God said they can't. And I trust him more than, I don't know, Gary Shamama or whatever his, I don't know, who knows. I'm just making a name. I figured no one's named that if you YouTube it later. <laughs> no one can know, not even the YouTube preacher. But it should give us a sense of urgency because no one can know, right? I don't know when that day is. I don't know how many days I got left. And so the people that I love, man, I want them to know the hope that I know. First Peter 4, 6 says, For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Meaning, the people who were dead to sin became alive in the spirit. And though their body dies, their spirit lives with Christ forever. See, the coming judgment is one of the reasons. There's a sense of urgency so that those dead in sin can be alive in Christ to find the hope and healing. That's why our mission's on the back, so all people can experience the freedom and the power of a new life in Jesus Christ. I think, though, when I say we've got to speak with some urgency, we kind of see some things. You know what I'm talking about. If you've been around church long enough, picture like this really big oak. Uh, um, I don't know. What do people normally use? Podium. Thank you. I'm like, I've always used a table. <laughs> it shows you my church background. Um, <laughs> big podium, a guy in like a really nice suit, like banging his fists and telling you like, turn or burn, right? Or you picture that guy like on the street who has like the sandwich board sign. It says like, the end is nigh. And it's like, all right, who uses nigh anymore, right? <laughs> but they're out there. These people are out there. And that is often what we think of when we think of confronting the reality and the urgency of the gospel. It's like, oh, I gotta get out there. I gotta tell them, turn or burn. Listen, friend, if you don't turn to Jesus, you're gonna burn in hell. What if you left today and you died and you burned in hell? I'm like, that cannot be the reason. I mean, if that gets you there, fine. But the urgency of the gospel, hear me, is expressed in praise, not in stormy rhetoric. The urgency of the gospel is expressed in praise. Look what he says in verse 9. He says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. We're called to praise. We're a holy people. We've received mercy. And so, yes, we preach Christ crucified, undeniably so. We preach Christ crucified. But we also do so by glorying in the cross. We recognize that we've received once we had no mercy. Now we have received mercy. And so guess what? When we have a sense of urgency, what should overflow? Mercy. 
and the hope and the joy and the praise from our lips that says, I'm undeserved, and yet God has given this to me and invited me. And we don't scream fire and brimstone. We overflow with praise for the love and life that we've received through Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, write this down. Worship is essential to evangelism. Let me say that again. Worship, someone say worship. Worship is essential to evangelism. I heard someone say, if we, the church truly worshiped, we wouldn't need missions. I don't know if that's true, but I understand their tension in saying that. Because there's something crucial about worship as it's linked to evangelism. See, today we think that declaration of the gospel is like preaching. That's what pastors do. But hear me, preaching is a really close cousin to praise. C.S. Lewis said, we praise that which we most enjoy. We praise that which we most enjoy. My wife, you, you heard me praise her already in this message because I love her and she's beautiful and amazing uh, and talented and gifted and anointed and all these things. Wouldn't it be weird if, like, you never saw her? <laughs> like, never saw her. You just assumed I was single, right? For, like, three years I was a lead pastor here. You never saw my wife. And then one day this beautiful woman showed up, and you're like, who is that? Who is that? I was like, oh, yeah, that's my wife. You're like, really? Oh, yeah, we are madly in love. Like, are you, are you sure? You have never talked about her one time. It's like, oh, yes, we are desperately in love. I love her more than anything in the whole world. It's like, really, you have never once, we've gone on vacations together, and you have never said anything about her. You would be shocked. Why didn't you say anything but then we apply Christ in that same spot. He's the Savior of my life. He changed my life. I have eternal life through him. Why didn't you say anything? You love him so much, but we've been here for three years. We went on vacations together. He didn't say anything. We were built to praise. Worship is essential to evangelism. Doesn't matter if it's a sunset you see or a camping spot or your spouse or even like a new movie you see or like when a baby's born. We have babies born all the time here. What do you get? You get the text with the awesome picture and the weight and the cute name and everyone's like, yeah, let's go. Why? Because part of enjoying something is the joy of declaring it to other people. Why do you spend all that money for a wedding? Because part of the joy is the celebration with others. That's why we're there. We don't want to be there and eat capers and salmon. We're there to celebrate with you. <laughs> I love weddings. I'm just joking. But our enjoyment is incomplete until we've communicated that joy to others. And that's the kind of joy that God intends for his people to have, to praise with, to celebrate him. That's why in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out into darkness, or called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. I love that. Have you thought about this lately? He says, You are a chosen nation, a holy priesthood. Think on those terms for a second. I don't know how you define yourself, but according to this scripture, you're a chosen people and a holy priesthood. That's how God sees you. That's an interesting term. I don't often, I don't put that in my bio. Like, Josh, holy priesthood, right? <laughs> because all the way back, Israel in the Old Testament, right, chosen from all the nation to be a kingdom of priests. Now, they had the Levites, they had the priests, but they were a kingdom of people who existed to declare the glories of God. 
Exodus 19, 6 says, for God says, for you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. First Chronicles 16, 20, 23 says, sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim his salvation day after day, declaring his glory among the nations, his marvelous deed among all the people. We were chosen and they were chosen the people of Israel, to declare the glory of God among people. But that's why in 1 Peter 2.10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you were a people. Are you, awake? are you here with me today? I want to make sure you're hearing me today. God has said, these were my people, these were my children, but now through Jesus Christ, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus is my child. Everyone is a part of the kingdom. Everyone is invited in. Everyone has received mercy. You are now a chosen priesthood. You are now a holy nation. You are now this, which means you are restored to your purpose, which is to worship God to praise, to sing and declare, to speak out, to live out the praises of God. If you're writing notes, you can write this down. Praise is natural. You were created to praise God. The reality is we know that we're created to praise because we praise all kinds of things. I cannot even tell you how much money I have spent in praising football teams. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's a lot. I can't tell you how many times I've lost my voice screaming at a football game, right? And I apologize for nothing, right? I will do it again tomorrow. If you invite me to Monday Night Football, we're in, right? I can't go. I'm sorry. I'm busy. Um, but we do. We scream. We scream our faces off. We get invested, right? We lift our hands. We shout. We do. We praise all kinds of things. Restaurants. You get a deal online. Amazon. I hear, I've seen people praise an Amazon deal, like, Cyber Monday, picked up this thing I didn't need, right? <laughs> Netflix series, like, you got to see this show. Like, I'm never going to watch it. Vacations, we praise, people praise politicians. It's like, you got to have that slogan. I don't know what the next one's going to be, like, building back better for tomorrow's past. I don't know what the next slogan's going to be, <laughs> but there's always something, right? People worship politicians. People worship musicians. People praise celebrities. It's like, have you seen what this person has done? Like, no. We post about songs. We post about our kids' school. Post about the coffee you had this morning, like praising the coffee because town coffee is really good, right? You post about the fact that you should have gotten some coffee this morning. Post about like a burrito that you're going to have later. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait, right? We do this. We sing the praises about literally everything. Are you with me? We sing the praises of, th this is why all of these media, social medias exist, because we just sing the praises of like whatever comes into our heart, like wore a plaid shirt today, greatest shirt I've ever fit, good job Dixon on the fit, five stars, right? <laughs> we praise everything, yet we struggle to publicly praise the greatest thing of all time, which is God. Why? We're not silent because we can't praise. Our gospel isn't silent because our mouths are broken. It's because our hearts are broken. See, I believe that church, if we were a church that declared the praises of God, that worshiped God as we should, then our friends, our family, our coworkers would be the first people to hear about it. Because it's a natural part of a response to a relationship with Jesus. If you really allow him to transform you, you really allow him to get a hold of your heart, it should be a natural response to praise him. Now, worship on a Sunday is a blessing to you, but it is not for you, just as a point of order. We're here to worship God. 
Now, it blesses you, but it's for him. But I'm not talking about singing on a Sunday here. I'm talking about the praises that you declare with your mouth in your everyday life. This is everyday evangelism. I've heard y'all sing. You're great at it. You kill it on a Sunday. I want to encourage you Monday through Saturday that God still has a plan and purpose for your praise. I think of the Samaritan woman at the well. Samaritan woman was an immoral woman coming to the well in the middle of the day. She was obviously trying to avoid a crowd, embarrassed, ashamed probably. And Jesus initiates this kind of culturally unthinkable conversation, which I love about Jesus. They're like, oh, I wouldn't talk to them. He's like, perfect. That's exactly who I'm going to talk to. <laughs> Yay, Jesus. And he reveals to her that he's the living water. He's life. And he also reveals her sin. I mean, very firmly but graciously, he says, hey, this is what your sin is. And he offers her living water. And she receives. She wants to have that. And in John 4, 28, it says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? See, when we come to Jesus, we have a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. We, have, we discover who Christ is. It should change us. And our evangelism is simply an overflow of transformation, an overflow of what God has done. It doesn't require a degree. Hear me. Evangelism does not require a degree. It just requires praise. So how do we declare God's praise? If that's what evangelism is, if praise is evangelism, how do we declare God's praise? I thought we could be really practical today as we lay in this plane. Can we do that? Awesome. Okay, first thing. How do we declare God's praise? One, be willing to offend. Okay, now hear me. I'm not saying want to offend people or thrive in offending people. That's a different message. We can talk about that another time. You're like, oh, I don't mind offending people. It's like, oh, we know. We know. Trust me. If you don't mind offending people, every one of your friends knows you're that person that doesn't mind offending people. We know. Uh, I'm saying being willing to offend, it looks like this, is that if you proclaim the gospel to somebody, there's a risk you will offend them. If you are never willing to risk offending, then you're probably not really going to say much of anything. It's like the book uh, Fahrenheit 451. I love reading books like uh, kind of this dystopian. I don't know why. I have a lot of hope in Jesus, so these things don't bother me. But uh, in the book, right, I don't know if you've read it, they rem start removing all books that are offensive to some people, which is ironic because the book got banned, like in the real world. Uh, <laughs> But they start removing every book that is offensive to somebody, and after a while, all the books are gone because everybody's offended by somebody or something. That's the tagline of 2020. The, everybody's offended by something, so there's no books. All there is is like a screen in your house that never shuts off. Anyways, every great dystopian novel has a TV that never leaves you alone. They just didn't realize they would be small. Uh, <laughs> But the reality is when you share a thought that is transformational and powerful, it can offend somebody, right? There's a risk that it could offend somebody. Let, let me give you some examples because I want to be highly, highly practical here. Um, let's say uh, I'm speaking to someone of the Muslim faith. 
I really believe that, that Jesus, I mean, I, I love reading about Jesus uh, giving visions and dreams to people uh, who live in Muslim countries that they can encounter the hope of Jesus Christ. I love that. Uh, and, and let's say, you know, I, I'm having a conversation with someone of the Muslim faith, and they ask me, uh, do I believe that Jesus is God's son, right? That'd be a reasonable thing for them to ask because they don't believe that Jesus is God's son. And my answer, graciously hear me, I, I would never, I'm not here to attack anyone. My answer would be, yeah, I, not only do I believe that he's God's son, I'll go a step further and go to John 1, 3, where it says that Jesus is God. I'm not seeking to offend, but the reality is that there's tension in that conversation, right? There's a risk there. Or if someone asked me, would I believe this other holy book, the book of this, the book of that? I would say no. And that could be offensive. And I'm not going to be like, no, and then like throw it out a window or something, right? That would just be mean. That would not be honoring or respectful. But I would have to say no. And I go to Galatians 1.8, and I would talk about how I cannot accept anything other than Scripture, other than the Word of God, even if that revelation came from an angel. So it doesn't matter if you tell me Gabriel sent it to you. I don't believe it because of what I believe in Scripture. That has a risk of offending people. How about people will come to me and say, well, you know, I, I believe in kind of all these things that are moving us to a higher plane of, of attainment, and Jesus was a good teacher on that road to show the way. And I would say, absolutely not. I'd say, unfortunately, he's almost the complete opposite because it doesn't matter if you're into, uh, you know, spiritualism or New Age religions and you're seeing him as a single teacher uh, producing a, a global idea consistent with all of nature, or you're part of the Muslim faith that sees prophets as people who should show the way to Allah. The reality is Jesus is none of that. He doesn't show you the way. He is the way. There are no other ways to the Father except through Jesus Christ, which should give us some hope that you can stop guessing how you find eternal love and life. It says through Jesus Christ. But I've had that conversation with people, and it can be offensive to people. But if you're not willing to offend, then you also don't have the beautiful result of walking real life with people and sharing hope. We have to be willing to offend if we want to share the real hope of Jesus Christ. Some of you might need to reset your expectations when it comes to what you think and experience sharing the gospel is going to look like. Go read the New Testament when they shared the gospel. See what happened to them and put that as your baseline expectation. And then you're likely not going to be disappointed. <laughs> yes. Unless you get stoned to death next week, you're on the up and up. Right? Right? He came in positive. You get stoned to death. Well, we'll talk about it in heaven. Uh, but the reality is that we need to be willing to offend. Second thing, everyone still with me? Say amen. Yeah. Amen. Okay, call for a response. Okay, I get on people who preach about, uh, we talk about this all the time. Like, how was it? I'm like, wow, that was full of some amazing information, but what on earth am I supposed to do with that? There has to be a response. Our gospel is one of a response. Evangelism is not simply having religious dialogue and exchanging ideas. You can be in a forum of exchanging ideas, but when you're thinking about evangelism as in preaching and declaring the gospel, the gospel is a summons. Jesus says in Luke 5.32, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Listen to what he's saying. I have come to call sinners like me, like you, to repent. What does that mean? See, that's not, a, that's not a bad word. That's like the best word ever. To lay down my burden of sin and shame, give it to him completely, and receive new life. So we've made that kind of like a bad word. That's an awesome word. I'm thankful for repentance. 
I'm thankful for chain breaking. I'm thankful for life giving. I'm thankful for freedom. I'm thankful for repentance. See, when we evangelize, it's not just saying, like, this is what I believe. There's an invitation to respond. But the call for a response has to have both urgency and love. Hear me. Hear me, church. Please, 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 please hear me. I think people make assumptions sometimes when you preach. So I want you to hear my heart today and hear me say that when you plead with others to turn from their sins, sometimes you do so with tears in your eyes. Sometimes when you express your deepest and longing desire, an invitation for someone to hear the hope that you have received and for them to receive it around the dinner table and this is that friendship and you're praying for this person. Sometimes you do it with a lump in your throat. This is not flippant. This is not aggressive and mean and demanding. This is from the deepest part of the longing of our being that says, I have discovered the living water and it pains me to see you go thirsty. And I have gone through my heart and my mind and I've walked with the Holy Spirit longing that you might encounter the hope of Jesus Christ because it's something so good. I will not apologize for the life that comes through Jesus Christ. I, I need you to know and so sometimes that looks like joy and laughter. Sometimes it looks like tears. Sometimes it looks like declaration but it is always done compassionately. Scripture said Jesus saw the crowd and it says he was moved with compassion in his guts in the deepest part of him. It's compassionately inviting them to join you in the hope of following Jesus. To invite them to believe the glorious good news. Church, I think we've forgotten that the good news is the good news. Like, it's in the name. It's good. And it's news. Tell somebody. <laughs> third thing, third and final thing. Band, you can come up. Third and final thing. I think it's probably one of the most important. It's the delight in the gospel. Delight in the gospel. See, the case for Christ is not just logical, it's doxological. It has to do with worship and praise. See, when you preach the gospel, you're not just speaking to someone's head. When you, when you have that opportunity to share with somebody around that dinner table, you're not just like, here are eight reasons you should believe in the resurrection, right? <laughs> now, I could give you those, but we're not just speaking to someone's head. We're also speaking to their heart. See, we're not just working to convince people the gospel's true, but also that our God is good. See, as someone who comes from a philosophy background, I think I'm more prone to make a case. And the danger of being all about making the case is sometimes you miss the compassion and the stirring of the heart that needs to happen. See, most of my conversations, they, they don't look like, let me give you all of the reasons um, all of the reasons for defending the cross and defending salvation and defending scripture. Though I do love those things, and I think apologetics, right, it has a very important place in the church. Very, very important. But for me, I think there's a shift from simply giving evidence of the resurrection to also reveling in it. From explaining, just simply explaining why Jesus is needed to instead showing why he should be wanted from defending the Bible's truthfulness, though it's true and it's the Word of God, but a shift in my heart from simply defending the Bible's truthfulness to also rejoicing in its sweetness. I heard it said this way, preaching the gospel requires propositional truths. Believing the gospel requires historical facts. But when we preach, others should see how those facts have changed our life. 
that's where it comes from. And so the question for us today is not uh, what do we need to build or go to or change or what you know, program do we need to be in. The question is, will I praise God with my life and with my words around others so that they may hear? And the amazing thing is we have the Holy Spirit to empower and strengthen us in that journey. I want you to ask this question of yourself today. If I had to ask those around me, what would they say and who would they say I love? Jesus is the savior of my soul. Does he break the top five? If I had to ask, what would they say? Would you stand with me today? I want to encourage you as I send you out this morning. We're going to sing this song here in just a moment talking about being poured out. But as I send you out, and I want to charge you to praise as evangelism, to be willing to offend. I want to charge you to call for a response. But most of all, I want to charge you to delight in the gospel. This has been my prayer lately. God, may your praises overflow in my speech and my actions. Lead me, Holy Spirit, and strengthen me to boldly proclaim the gospel. That's what we need. God, may your praises overflow in my speech and my action. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Today, if you're here in this place, that's what you long for your heart. Saying, I, I, maybe you've even struggled with the idea of evangelism, but just the whole idea sounds scary. But I want to simplify it for you right here with clarity. Say it's birth out of a praise and a gratitude for the love of Jesus that you've received. But some of you this morning, maybe you struggle to recognize the great love that you've received. You can nail this whole religion thing, but you have struggled to really recognize how much God truly loves you. And today, today, I want to pray that he reveals his love. But if you're here today specifically and you're saying, God, I long for your praise to overflow in my speech and my actions. And Holy Spirit, would you lead and strengthen me to proclaim the gospel? I want to pray with you today. Would you do me a favor? Would you just lift your hands if that's your prayer? You're saying, I don't want to bang people over the head. I don't want to you know, scream and shout. I want the evangelism in my life to be an overflow of the praise in my heart. We need to start by praying that our heart would be full of the praises of God so that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth would speak. Let me pray for you today. God, I thank you for your great love. Lord, if there's those today here in this space as we're praying to receive that and releasing it to you, God, if there's those today who have struggled to recognize your great love for them, I pray right now that you would just reveal the depths and riches of your love as you have revealed it in your word to them. And God, I thank you that you sent your son and that Jesus, you went to the cross and you died for us. And you rose again and you invited us into the resurrection. Thank you for the gift of mercy and grace that you have given to us. And God, our prayer is that our heart would be so full and overwhelmed and overflowing with that joy and that praise of your great love for us. That in our actions and in our speech that your praises might overflow. But Holy Spirit, we recognize that we need you in this. This is not by our strength, but by yours. So we pray, Holy Spirit, strengthen us 
us to boldly proclaim the gospel. We pray this morning, as the worship band leads us, we pray this morning that you would fill us up and pour us out to those around us. Jesus' name. I'm going to do this this morning. We're going to enter in a time of worship, and I'm going to invite you. We did this first service. We had people down here praying and laying hands on each other. I just want to encourage you, if you need to release anything to God, if you need healing from anything, if you need a time where honestly you just pray, God, would you reveal your love to me or whatever it might be? God, would you speak through me? You just want to respond. We open this altar time, and I encourage you to not hesitate to engage in that and receive what God has for you as we worship and sing these praises. Let's worship together.